1: helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. The Olympic Games bring together the most talented and dedicated athletes our planet has to offer. Year after year, young men and women make sacrifices to become a member of the small percentage of athletes who make the cut. My special guest is an extraordinary woman who, despite first breaking her neck and later battling a rare form of stage three cancer, fulfilled her goal of making the Olympic team. And by the way, not only made the team, but was captain of the team, a true warrior in many ways. My guest this week has a lot to teach us about leadership, perseverance, and breaking the mold. I am honored to welcome a woman who has been described as unbreakable, fearless, and the most ferocious player in the history of women's rugby, Olympian, speaker, businesswoman, and mother, Jillian Potter. Jillian, welcome to Say It Skillfully.
2: Hey, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for the show today.
1: Well, that is two of us, and it's going to be a huge treat for listeners and for me. I, your Folks are probably wondering, how did you possibly cross paths with Limpy and Jillian? And I'm going to just say that there's no one out there who could possibly know this other than your dear mom. And so I have to share. <laughs> I have to share what I know, and then you need to share with me what your mom said. So, folks, I happen to be changing mobile phone services, And got this lovely woman on the phone and being the loyal customer type of person I am, I instead of wanting to call back and talk to a different person every time, I would literally leave a message that the manager would give to this great person who would then call me back. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so she got to know me, I got to know her. And then she's like, you have to talk to my daughter. I'm like, what? and so that's how i and i was like okay 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 so i'm dying to know julian what did you hear from your mom's side
2: so my mom she is amazing at her job and building rapport and building relationships in fact i think one of the best lessons i've learned from my mother is that we've never met a stranger and and molly you know when she told me about meeting you on the phone I was like, mom, you know, don't, you know, this may not be the place. And of course my mom loves to talk about me and it's very endearing. And so I usually just let it go, but honestly, and then you show up in my life. I'm like, okay, mom, like awesome. Um, But my mom does share um, stories about me as often as she can, as any proud mother probably would of their their own children.
1: Yeah. She is a superstar. And I, of course, uh, well, I mean, it's already exceeded expectations, but I do think folks in life, if you're open to it and you push it, and this is the whole value of the relationship dimension is you just never know the kind of goodness that happens from it. So I'm, I'm really am. It's a great gift to cross paths with you, Jillian. And I'm really grateful to your mom. So shout out to Vicki here over the air. Um, listen, I am blown away by your perseverance, uh, what you've shown throughout your life, Almost being paralyzed due to the neck injury. Unsure if you'd, you know, overcome cancer to where you are now. It's unbelievable. Uh, But before going there, I really appreciate you sharing how your journey started.
2: Well, I grew up or I was born in Austin, Texas. I have an older sister and a twin brother. And many people will ask me, Oh, hey, are you and your twin brother alike? Yes and no. He doesn't really play sports. And I think we're very different in terms of personality. But a lot of things that we have in common are our mannerisms and, you know, our emotional kind of feelings. (laughs) We're both very emotional people. But, you know, we grew up in a divorce household. My mom and dad split when I was about five years old. And they shared joint custody. So every year, my brother and I would move from one household to the other. And my mom might be living in Austin. My dad might be living somewhere else. And so each year, we'd pack our bags, and we would move to another city, another school, and kind of have to restart and transition again and again. And I think through that adversity, I threw myself into sports. I started skateboarding at a very young age and found my way to basketball in seventh grade and it was a way for me to express myself without and kind of lose myself with with all the things that were happening in my life it gave me a lot of control and grounded me right um so i would say you know really sports saved my life in a lot of ways and i was lucky to have that outlet
1: Hmm. That is remarkable that you and your brother change cities, change schools every year. Wow! It
2: is. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was pretty remarkable. I think at at finally um, during high school, I believe we were like, "Hey, I don't want to move anymore." You know, I want to make the women's varsity team. I was very focused on you know, hoping to get a college scholarship in basketball. And so at that time, I said, no, I'm going to stay put. But actually, my junior year in high school, I ended up packing my car up and driving driving to Albuquerque, New Mexico to live with my mom my senior year in high school. So even though I thought I was going to stay put, I ended up moving again. But, <laughs> um, you know, going through transitions, going through um, ups and downs, I think it allowed me to be the woman I am today, having to overcome some hardships and really being open to making new relationships and having, you know, candid conversations and really putting yourself out there. You have to. Every time you make a new friend or um, do something new, join a new team, right, Um, having that skill set was very woven um, in my childhood.
1: One question on that in terms of you know, you love each parent, any resentment? I mean, did you feel like, I can't believe this is happening to us. I mean, how did you not turn, you know, I mean, there's, there's a potential for some negativity.
2: Yeah, I think honestly, that's why I threw myself into sports, Molly. I don't really regret um, or have any kind of resentment towards my, my family. I think they, they did the best that they could. And it wasn't perfect. And we were very low income. And so I think, you know, having that experience and understanding what it's like to be living on food stamps or like to be living paycheck to paycheck, um, not having hot water or standing by our oven for heat, right? Like when I think back to some of the things that we did in in our childhood, it didn't seem all that bad, you know? Um, But I knew we were not as fortunate as others.
1: Would you say your siblings have the same attitude about their upbringing?
2: Probably not. I would say my brother ended up moving with my sister when he was 14 years old. So my brother and I didn't really have a chance to um, be in high school together. Mm. And we all three had very different experiences. So I think because I was so involved in sports, I had a a full time job at the age of 14, I really threw myself into extracurricular activities. Um, whereas I think I'm not sure we've, we haven't had that conversation so much as adults. We've had some of it, but I, I do know that we all very much had different experiences.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a story to unfold for sure as you folks in your own right uh, mature and look at your past in new ways. You know, that's just a, a story to unfold. Wow so basketball so I'm thinking basketball rugby so say more about how that
2: <laughs> evolved you know um, as I mentioned I moved my junior year in high school to Albuquerque and I joined the basketball team there and I had full and I was hopeful that I would get a scholarship in basketball or walk on to the women's team at the University of New Mexico now one of the greatest things about being in Albuquerque at the time that I was, and I know it's still available today, is if you graduate high school with, I believe maybe a 3.0, it could be a little bit lower, I'm not sure, you get a what's called a lottery scholarship to the University of New Mexico, meaning that your first year is free in terms of tuition. Mm-hmm. And you just have to maintain a 3.0 throughout college and you get five years of tuition for free. Based on this lottery scholarship, and it was a no-brainer for me because my family, my my parents, didn't graduate. Co- um, didn't graduate from college. In fact, I'm not sure anyone in my family had graduated from college. But I knew that. Oh yes, I need to jump on this. Right. We didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't quite sure how I would even pay for college. So having this lottery scholarship said yes, absolutely, and maybe I'll make the basketball team too. That would be the cherry on top. And my first week at the University of New Mexico, I was approached by a woman. She tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, do you wanna play rugby? And my response was no. (laughs) I I didn't even know what rugby was, to be honest, but I was so focused on basketball and the hopes of walking on to the women's team that I immediately said, no, thank you, and just kept on walking. And this would happen three other times during the first week of school. And I remember going home and being like, mom, I keep getting approached by women asking me to play rugby. And my mom was like, "You have this is a sign of the universe. You should go out and practice. And I don't think she would probably have been so enthusiastic if she had known what rugby actually was, being a combination of. Football and soccer in a very physical sport. I'm not sure my mom would be like, yes, absolutely, go tackle people. But I did. And I went out to the field that afternoon and it was tackling and fitness. And honestly, Molly, it was I, I it felt so good that I never looked back. I didn't pick up a basketball for years, didn't even think about basketball as soon as I started to play rugby.
1: Unbelievable. So uh, I, you know, I was a gymnast, and I, I watch people, but when men play football and they catch the ball and they fall into the air and I, onto the ground, and I always think if I fell down at that velocity and those heights, like all my limbs would just pop off my body, like I'm not strong enough. So I just can't. <laughs> were you always just so fit and strong? Because it's it's so physical, and there's no padding, and you know, it's it's remarkable that sport.
2: You know, um, I was 135 pounds when I started playing rugby at 5'10", which is pretty small. But I grew up playing tackle the person with the ball and roughhousing with my step family and my step brother and my brother and was a tomboy, right? I mentioned that I was a skateboarder. And so I fell a lot on concrete, on hard things and just got back up. And for rugby in particular, it was oh, I'm allowed to to do this. I just hit them. I'm allowed to take tackle them. Like, and they're like yes. And I was like oh okay. But really, what makes rugby special, physicality aspect aside, is that anyone from any background, any shape, any size can play the rugby to get play rugby together side by side. There is a, literally a position for everyone, and I think that's really what's incredibly unique and special about rugby is they welcomed me with open arms. They said, listen, we'll teach you everything you need to know. And when I became captain at the University of New Mexico, I would sign up and do just what that woman did to me As I would walk around campus asking women to come play rugby or joining a weightlifting class or any kind of class where I was like, there's going to be an, a female athlete here that will want to play rugby. And I just have to ask them and say, listen, I'll teach you everything you need to know. And, and really, that's, that's why I stayed, as it was an incredibly inclusive group of women and men that played rugby and that still do. Wow.
1: So the leadership piece, Becoming Captain, say more about that. Was that a natural for you?
2: I would say so. I mean, it's not something I ever um, go after. I think when I was younger, I never thought of myself as a captain. I never said, you know, or had that kind of inclination to um, step into that role. It's just something that I think I was given based on probably my performance and how I, you know, built relationships with my teammates, um, how the, how I worked hard and maybe some of my personal values, but it was never something that I said, yes, I want to be captain. In fact, I I think captain is a really hard job and, I, more often than not, would probably have turned it down if actually given the choice. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. If you're to you
1: know, look from the outside in, looking at you perform on the field, looking at you lead, Jillian, how would you self-assess your top attributes as teammate, as leader?
2: I would say that I'm very authentic, and humble. And I include people, I think one of the things I do really well is help others see their own strengths and really capitalize on those strengths. I think too often we are part of a society that focuses on our weaknesses. And in my opinion, it's, it's nice to acknowledge where your weaknesses are and put some effort into improving them. But imagine if more people Focused on their strengths, how much better they would become, and Mm -hmm. how much less stressed out they would be, and how much more confident they would be. And so that's how I would explain my leadership. I think when I was younger, I was very, I thought I had to be that, you know, yelling hurrah, hurrah kind of leader. But as I got older, I realized it's okay not to say anything, to just listen and let other people have the floor. Um, to really think about and be mindful and intentional about what you say and when you say it. So, you know, I've grown a lot. I think any leader does, they go through multiple phases of leadership, but I'm still going through, through it too. I mean, it's a never ending process because we're never the best leaders that we can be. You're always improving. You always need to get better. And that's how I think, I think a leadership is a moving target that we should all strive to, prove that
1: you know for sure it is a total for sure and leading oneself is such a big part of it which you've done so great would you take our listeners through because you you shared with me uh a bit about um you know becoming your true self and and your high school basketball coach and um, what i found qu- surprising and um and really i think has probably helped to find you be the inclusive leader that you are
2: Yes, you know, um, one of the biggest gifts that Rugby gave me was a platform to come out as gay because it was so inclusive and open and welcoming. And looking back on my childhood, I never really knew that I was gay. I was always attracted to women and men or boys or girls, but I, I didn't really have a label or any kind of real sense of, of that. And until um, a girl on my basketball team in high school got cut for coming out as gay. And we lived in a small town in Texas. And I remember her, um, my friend, and she was a friend of mine, getting cut from the team and our coach pulling us all in in the locker room and talking about how disgusting it was to be gay and how, you know, terrible it was, and just this incredible uh, amount of shame um, towards this player. And I can't—I I mean, at the time, you just say, yes, coach, right? But I didn't realize until much later in life how terrible that was, right? Um, I think in high school, I was so focused on just playing the game and moving forward that I didn't really, you know, take much stock into it. You know, and I wish I had I wish I had been able to stand up for her or be a better friend, even because once she was cut, I didn't really associate with her right because my group of people were my teammates, and um I think that was a real big disservice you know that I wish I had done better, but I didn't know
1: well, as a young person, I think that that's just arresting, and when we talk about safety, right when the leader rallies people together and is very clear what's unacceptable and and you see the consequence, you know, I I could imagine you don't really have time to think about it. You're just like, this is obviously what the program is <laughs> and um, no questions asked. You know, this is probably a moment for folks listening and and I, gosh, I really hope it's not something people are, are experiencing or even observing. If you were to, Take yourself back then. What, what might have been something you you would you could have said? I mean, being practical, you know, if you were if you were kind of not so shell shocked, and, and maybe there was potentially wasn't even a potential place. Like it's just too foreign at the time for someone to consider that that it's totally fine to be who you are. But is there anything you think you could have said?
2: You know, I would probably. I'm not sure I would have spoken up in that. Moment, right, where everyone was there, Uh, unless I was going to ask a question about, like, help me understand why that's wrong or help me understand why we cut her because of this. It's none of our business. Um, But really, I think I would have shown up better for my friend and asked her how I could have supported her or just not. I I could only imagine how alone she felt, right, Um, to be outcasted by not just the coach, but the entire basketball team and i'm sure there was other repercussions um, that happened to her because of it and that school it was a very um predominantly white predominantly christian school and you know i think they probably even if i went to the principal they would probably side with the coach
1: yeah yeah this is i mean this is real folks you know it's this this is how you know the attitudes um, perhaps don't change as, as quick as we'd like. And, you know, when you get to a place where you have the ability to influence and show a different and a better way, that's just the opportunity that we have. So thanks for going there uh, with us, Jillian. Um, so talk about the college and the, just this sporting life. And and I am curious when you're such a high-end athlete where studies, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, because I wasn't a collegiate athlete, how much of it is school? How much of it is athletics? Um, And then how did you think about, you know, as you were getting on in college, what were you going to do after it?
2: You know, women's rugby wasn't very big when I was playing rugby in college. In fact, I didn't even know there was a USA team until my coach really advocated for me to be on this U.S. under-19 team, which means for anyone or any um, girls that are fall under the age of 19 years old. So there was U.S., U-19, U.S., U-23s. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, like, sure, you really want me to do this, I'll, I'll go do it, right? But I didn't aspire to be on the USA team immediately. It's just something that, oh, okay, like, I'll just go and, and do this. And I made the... U.S. under-19 team within three months of playing, probably because I was incredibly physical, but I didn't know much about the game still. In fact, I was sitting in a huddle, and, and the coach was talking about the game and the line and like strategy, and he was talking about a line on the field, field. and he said, oh, when we were in this 22-meter line, this is what you do. And I remember thinking, I don't even know what that is. And I had to ask someone next to me, hey, what's the 22? And she's like, oh, it's this line right here. Oh, okay. So when we're in this part of the field, this is what he's talking about? And she's like, yeah. I was like, okay, got it. Um, But I was very, very new. But I was always curious and asking questions and going with the flow and just doing the best that I could, right? And um, I made the next level of the USA team within a year of playing rugby. And then I found out, oh, Ashley, there's a – real USA team that travels the world and plays rugby internationally against other countries. And there was a women's world cup in 2006 in Canada. And I thought, Oh, I want to go watch. I want to go see that, you know, and I went with three teammates and that's a whole nother story of us going out there, but sitting there and being a part of, of that environment and to, to feel You know, that energy in the game, I thought, I'm going to be one of those women one day. I'm going to play rugby down there. And I made that decision, you know, to do the best that I could so that I could represent my country on the field one day. And in 2007, I had the opportunity to do just that. But initially, no, I hadn't thought about it at all. And it just kind of very much came the way of my life because of the many doors that opened to me, but it wasn't something that I was planning for.
1: You mentioned this whole other story about going to Canada to watch. So what was the side story there?
2: Oh, I I mean, you know, when you're 19 and you think you're prepared and we didn't rent a car, we, you know, we were just like, didn't have a place to stay. (laughs) Like We just had to like go with the flow and uh, figure it out. And um, but we, we we thought we had it all planned. And of course, we were adults and we could figure this out. But we, we did a very poor job, but we got to where we needed to be. And um, that was the most important part is we were there to play rugby. But, um, you know, that that those memories, I think, of just getting there was very funny, you know, so. Um, not, not really probably worth the airtime, though, Molly. I,
1: no. I, love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So you've got this commitment. And you have this fire that you're going to be this gal down there one of these days. And so how did you go about making it happen?
2: You know, I continued playing rugby at the University of New Mexico. I focused on keeping my grades up. I waitressed full time and I saved my money because at the time for you to play rugby for Team USA, you had to pay your way for a lot of things. You had to fundraise, you had to get some money so you can fly to different assemblies and to fly internationally. And I saved my money every ounce, every every bit of work, um, every dollar I had was for rugby, for new cleats, for mouth guards, for whatever I might need. That's what I spent my money on. And my coach did everything that he could as well to give me any kind of extra scholarships or work or any kind of financial assistance. I was very fortunate in that I had a lot of advocates for me to fundraise and to get me to places, right? Because at the time it was very much, hey, can you, can you afford to play, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what I did is mainly just that and, in 2010, I was named co-captain of the 2010 World Cup team. And then as you mentioned earlier on, I ended up breaking my neck um, before I was able to represent my country at the World Cup. But I had full intention of doing that, of course. <laughs> oh, well, so uh, this is,
1: sounds so scary, and I imagine it was. And so what was that like and how you know, because the ability to know that you could play again and then to go through what it takes to play again. That's a whole, that's a whole journey of it in its own right.
2: Yes. We were playing a test match against Canada and it was a very bizarre kind of situation. Something that I, I don't think would happen that often, but what I remember, and I didn't watch the film. So this is just my, probably skewed memory, who knows, is as the tackler, you have a moment to get up and steal the ball, right? It's called poaching. And I tackled the Canadian player, I got up, I poached the ball, the ball was moved away on my team. So imagine, you know, in football terms, a quarterback would come and pass the ball away, and then you're attacking a different part of the field. So I relaxed my body. And I remember then two Canadian women hitting me, as you might expect. So if If um, to protect the ball. They probably didn't know that I had already stolen it and and it had already moved away. But they hit me and my head um, was forced into the ground in a hyperflexed position. And my neck, I just remember hearing pop, 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 pop. And I just froze on the ground. And I couldn't move. I rolled over on my back, but I didn't make any other movements and a teammate came over and said, Jillian, are you okay? And I said, no. I said, something's wrong with my neck. And she held my neck and she tried to calm me down, um, but I was terrified.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: we stopped the game. The medical staff came out and they did all kinds of neurological tests, right? Everything to kind of figure out what was happening, but they couldn't figure it out. I wasn't exhibiting any paralysis, any weakness, anything else. And they're like, okay, well, let's stand up. And so I stood up. And as soon as I stood up, I was in the most excruciating pain, right? And then I started crying. And I walked off the field, and I sat on the bench, and I was in pain. But I watched the rest of the game, right? And I had some teammates hold my hand on the sideline. And then after the game, I walked to the, to the locker room, uh, had some friends and some teammates help take off my clothes and get dressed and showered. And then we got into a car and I was driven to the hospital about 45 minutes away. And then um, they threw on a neck brace and they did all the scans and they said, listen, Jillian, you broke your neck and you'll never play rugby again. But they, <laughs> that's it. That's what they said, you know. And um, I remember just being shocked. And it was just a CT scan. And they said, you have to go back to the States and get an MRI and everything else. Um, But yeah, like they were very convinced that I would never play rugby again. Oh, just imagine, Molly, I had to call my mom, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. yeah. Nothing like calling up your mother and saying, hey, I broke my neck. Don't worry, I can walk. (laughs) My gosh.
1: So the fear, just wondering, I mean, you're okay, paralysis, like w- w- what were they saying? You'll, you'll be able to move again? Did you not know?
2: I mean, I could move the whole time I was able to move, but I was very lucky because it turned out that where I was injured, my C4 and C5, uh, my C5 was displaced into my spinal cord. And that's where your lungs, you know, are um, connected to, I guess, like how your nerves and your um, spinal column connect to your breathing. And um, it was a very life-threatening neck injury, I would say, but one that I was very fortunate not to um, fall fall ill to, right? Um, so I, I ended up having surgery and in New York and I ended up picking a surgeon that was an a surgeon that had done countless NFL players um, to do my surgery because the other options seemed to um, just over the top, like screws and bolts and cutting through my muscle and all this stuff. And this guy said, listen, we'll just go in the front. There'll be plate, four screws, you're good. And so I obviously picked that one because that guy was like, yeah, you'll be able to play rugby again. So that's <laughs> that's how I pitched my surgeon. <laughs> oh my and, God. I mean, I will say, you know, my the medical staff on Team USA was amazing. Right. They did a lot of um, diligence and they set me up with the surgeon. They set me up, up with the best of the best. Right. Um, and they wanted that you know, dream of mine to come to reality. If I said, listen, I, I didn't want to play rugby again, maybe they would have picked another surgeon. But the fact that I said, yeah, absolutely I'm playing rugby again, they're like, okay, let's go down this path. And um, so I was very lucky with for the medical staff on Team USA.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm so smiley. Oh heck, you bolts <laughs> of No no brainer. We're all there. Done. <laughs> oh my gosh. So how long of a rehab was it and then Was your mom okay with you going back out there? I'm I'm wondering if she tried to convince you otherwise.
2: You know, I think my mom knew she couldn't convince me um, not to do it. Right. I'm a pretty stubborn person, I would say. But she did voice her opinion multiple times. And she was with me when I had my neck surgery. And I was there um, for about a week. And then I went home to um, do physical therapy. I went to back to the University of New Mexico and coached a little bit. And I probably pushed the the limits on my physical therapy a little bit. Um, I took off my neck brace a little bit, probably too early, but um, and and I wouldn't change anything, right? And I also had a really phenomenal physical therapist that um, got me back on track and into the best shape um, that I could be. And one that I relied on even when I was sick with cancer is she has been my physical therapist, I guess, for, you know, going on 20 years. So um, yeah, I had a really amazing physical therapist that watched my back.
1: Wow. Wow. And so the Olympic experience, um, I mean, and I guess the question I have is, did you just know it, was it in your mind, like there was any doubt that this was going to work? You're like game on, like for sure, this is going to work.
2: Well, to be honest, the Olympics wasn't even an option. It wasn't even on the table. And so in 2010, I broke my neck. And then in 2000, the fall of 2011, I started playing rugby again. And in 2012, the Olympic announcement came. For the first time ever in history, women's rugby was going to be included at the Olympic Games for rugby sevens. And I remember hearing that announcement. I was in uh, Carol in my apartment, and hearing that, and I thought, interesting. I'm gonna get one of those contracts, right? But, but, and, and you laugh. But I, I mean, I wanted to go. I wanted to try. And in fact, there's a big difference between rugby 15s and rugby sevens. Right, um, Rugby Sevens is a 15-minute game. It's seven on seven. It's a, incredibly fast. And Rugby Fifteens is 15 on 15. It's an 80-minute game. It's very physical, territorial, and strategic. And so there are two very different games. Different, different types of players play each game. And most people would say, Jillian, you're way too slow and dumb to play sevens. <laughs> I mean, they love me, right? Like my friends were just honest. They're like, Jillian, I just, I don't know if you're that player. But in my mind, I said, you know what? I'm still going to raise my hand for this because why not? You know, this is the first time ever that women's rugby is going to be in the Olympics. And I know I'm just coming back from my neck injury, but I'm going to give it a shot. And so I emailed the USA Rugby 7s head coach and I told him my story. I said, hey, I play this position in and, and the 15s team, and I just broke my neck, but I would really love a shot to join the rugby sevens team. And he emailed me back. He said, hey, listen, I talked to the USA 15s coach, and you have one shot. It's um, during this hour um, at the next assembly. I thought, okay, great. You know? <laughs> wow. And um, so I went out there. And it was tackling and fitness, and I did very well. And he offered me a position on the B-side team, so the USA B-side team. And I went to L.A. and, oh, no, Las Vegas and played. And um, after that tournament, he offered me the last contract to move to San Diego and be a professional rugby player. Oh, my gosh. Were you beside yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I got it via email and I, I didn't know what to do. So I didn't respond because I was there in um, Las Vegas. Right. And I get this email saying, Hey, we'd like to offer you this contract. And so I didn't respond. I didn't tell anyone. And then the the head coach sat me down and he goes, did you get my email? I was like, yeah. He goes, well, (laughs) what do you think? And I was like, well, tell me a little bit more about it because I really wasn't sure. And I had just started dating my now wife. So I, I certainly didn't want to mess that up, right? But um, I went home um, to Denver and I talked to Carol and I said, hey, like, you know, I've got this contract and she's like, well, you have to go. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I have to, right? And it was, um, I packed my stuff up and I moved, I think, in February or March of 2012. And there was eight of us in a four-bedroom house. And I didn't have a room. I had this nook. And my teammates had built me a a ceiling of curtain. I had probably um, a ceiling that was a curtain and one, two, three walls that were a curtain. And then my back wall was an actual wall. But I lived in basically a curtain room. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Say a little bit about Carol for us, because she understood rugby. You met on the field?
2: We did. We met playing rugby in Denver, Colorado for the Glendale Raptors. And I showed up at practice. I had just moved from Albuquerque to Denver, knowing that I wanted to get back and play rugby. And Carol had just moved from L.A. to Denver for a job. And when you're a rugby player, the first thing that you do to build your network and your friendship group and get a job, even you go to rugby practice and you say, Hey, I play rugby. Um, I also need a job and a place to stay or, you know what I mean? And More often than not, you'll get sorted out. So that's kind of what happened is I moved to Denver. I moved in with some rugby players that I knew and went to practice. And I met Carol there and she had just moved to Denver maybe three days ahead of me. So we both moved to Denver at a similar time frame. Oh, I love that love story. It's so
1: fabulous. (laughs) It's great. So now how far we we were apart and then you, you know, you you got the contract. You're off. I mean, just give us a little time check.
2: Yeah. So I got the contract in 2012. Um, Carol stayed in Denver and then I played in the 2013 World Cup where we won a bronze medal in Russia. And then I played in the 2014 World Cup for Rugby 15s in Paris. And that's when I was diagnosed with cancer is after the World Cup there. Um, so we, Carol and I did long distance up until um, I had to move back to Denver for treatment.
1: And How did that um, diagnosis, I mean, how did you find out about that? And what was that? You know, I guess having come through all the rehab with the neck injury, how were you emotionally?
2: You know, um, we found the tumor probably that spring and we didn't know it was a tumor right away. We thought it was like the blocked salivary gland or something completely not a tumor, right? And I was, I think, 26 at the time um, and when we did find, find out, we went to an ENT and they're like, yeah, you have a tumor, but listen, like it's looks good. It's small, it's encapsulated and you, you don't smoke, you don't drink. I mean, you're a professional athlete. Like we're not worried about you. I said, okay, but listen, I have the world cup coming up. So, you know, do you want to have the surgery now or should we just wait? And so they were like, let's just wait we'll just go ahead and go do World Cup things and then come back and have a surgery. Well, when you do a World Cup, it's multiple weeks long in another country. And the lead up to that is also a lot of traveling and test matches and things like that. And it went from, the tumor went from one by two inches to 10 by eight by five by the time my tumor was removed from my mouth. And I played the entire World Cup with that tumor. And I remember as time went on through the World Cup, my tongue would be more pressed into the roof of my mouth. And I remember thinking, there is something wrong. This is wrong. This is not right. But I didn't want to let go of the World Cup because I had just missed the 2010 World Cup because of my neck injury. And so I was like, no, I'm going to finish this out. Like, this is just whatever. I'll figure it out after I'm done with the World Cup. And um, I don't remember much about the World Cup, to be honest, because I was so tired. I think I went to practice, played in games and then went to sleep. <laughs> so I couldn't Jeez. tell you anything about the World Cup, to be honest, except how tired and fatigued I was. Um, my body hurt and I luckily I was very incredibly fit, but I was tired, you know, and I got back to San Diego and we scheduled that surgery and it was, the tumor was removed from my mouth and because of its size, they couldn't take all of the tumor out. But, um, they said, listen, you know, this is really big. Um, and they they couldn't really tell us right away. It was cancer. They said, you know, this doesn't look good, but to me, I was like, okay, I don't know what even that means. So whatever, <laughs> like, you know, because, yeah. Um, and then three weeks later, we found out it was sarcoma, which is a soft tissue cancer, but they didn't know what kind it was. And my surgeon, when he broke the news, it was, I was sitting with my athletic trainer and he's like, yeah, it's sarcoma, but he didn't really explain to me what that was, right? And it was basically at that time, like Charlie Brown. I couldn't, I mean, you couldn't tell me what he said, right? Mm -hmm. I just knew it wasn't good. And he left the room and my athletic trainer um, looked at me and I said, do you want to get some lunch? And she's like, well, do you want a hug? I was like, I guess. And so I stand up, get a hug, we go to lunch. And then um, she's like, listen, like, don't go back to the Olympic Training Center, just go home. You know, call Carol, tell her what's going on. And I call Carol and I say, hey, babe, you know, it's not good. It's something called sarcoma. And um, and that's when I started Googling when I got home. But like at the time, I didn't know it was cancer. I had to read it on my phone, <sighs> right? Like, oh, soft tissue cancer. And I'm like, oh, my surgeon didn't say it was cancer. <laughs> you know, and then my kind of world crumbled a bit. Um, but I kept that information pretty close. I didn't say anything, especially not to my family, for a while until I knew what kind of cancer I had, what it meant, um, what the plan was. Um, and when you're diagnosed with something like that, it takes a long time to figure out what you're gonna do. And, um, so yeah, wow,
1: and how what was the treatment?
2: Well, because of its rarity, and uh, it was called synovial sarcoma, we went to MD Anderson in Houston, and they said, hey, listen, you needed to start chemo yesterday. And they said, you can either do chemo here in Houston, or we can reach out to your hospital in Denver and see you know, what your options are there. And luckily, the person in Denver, um, or my oncologist in Denver, was very equipped to Treats another sarcoma and it was a four-day inpatient chemotherapy that was pretty brutal I would say and um and then that was about 12 cycles I think you know my my memory honestly Molly is pretty um I forget <laughs> you know <laughs> but it was like probably I would say four to five months of chemotherapy and then I uh, we moved we went to Houston for radiation treatment And I remember thinking that radiation was the opportunity for me to put muscle on, to to, because I had lost 25 pounds, 20, 25 pounds in chemo. And I was like, listen, like radiation, I mean, what is that? That's just going to make me tired, right? I just went through a really, uh, a lot of chemo. I can handle this. And I had um, a ritual, you know, I would get up every morning, I would eat um, oatmeal, I would eat like high calorie foods. Then I would go and get radiation at 11 a.m. every day and come home and do a baking soda rinse because I was so worried about my teeth and my um, teeth care during that time. And then I would go to the gym and I would hang out at the gym for about three to four hours and I would do my workout. What would, would take probably a normal person about an hour to do it would take me about three hours to do, but I would do it. And I did it every single day. Um, with the hopes of making it back to the Olympic training center.
1: Wow, do you know anyone tougher than you are? <laughs>
2: yes, <laughs> I. You know, honestly, Molly, it's it's interesting, right? Because I, I don't know if it was because I was so hyper focused. When I get really focused on something, you cannot derail me, right? Um, and I just set set myself up to succeed, you know. And I had the support of Carol and my family and my teammates had people fly in to help me during radiation, um, including some of my USA teammates. And not once did someone say, I couldn't do it. Right. Not once did someone say, Jillian, this is too, you're shooting too high. And I'm grateful that they didn't say that. Right. That I'm sure behind the bat, behind my bat, they're like, Jillian, it's a little crazy. Like, She doesn't really think that she's going to make it back to the Olympics, does she? But I did, you know, or I was going to try everything that I could to do that. And um, I moved back to the Olympic Training Center six months after radiation. Oh my gosh.
1: You are my hero.
2: (laughs) You're so thank you, Molly. Wow.
1: Wow. Wow. So after that training, just for the Olympics can't possibly be hard. I mean, <laughs> you're just like this is the easiest thing I've ever
2: done. <laughs> well, I mean, I would say that um, you, it puts it into perspective because I was there, and of course, I wanted to make the team, but I didn't put that kind of pressure on myself. To be honest, because I was happy to be alive, know, I was happy to have quote unquote beaten cancer, um, happy to be playing the game that I love, happy to be around my teammates, and. You know, the Olympic year was full of turbulence. We had three coaching changes. We had a lot of adversity. It was not a very fun year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that it was nothing. It was a drop in the bucket compared to to having cancer. You know, and um, and then we made it to the Olympics and we finished fifth place. It was a really great showing. Um, proud of the team and the girls and all of our efforts and um. yeah, it was being at the Olympics was a remarkable experience.
1: Wow. Wow. I just, I just can't even, I can't even imagine the level of just joy and pride and gratitude that you
3: had to be full of.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny because I, you know, people would start calling me an Olympian before I even made the team. I said, no, no, please don't do that. Like I haven't made the team um, you have to actually run out on the field and play, right? Like you have to, you there's I mean, in my mind, you had to do that. And I remember um, running out on the field and be like, okay, here we go. You know, but in my mind, it's the, th- the beautiful thing about the 2016 Olympics is all the women in all the countries were there in the same position, right? And they had started the professional program around the same time. And, In a lot of ways, you kind of grew into the player that you did alongside those other women because you played against them tournament after tournament, year after year, and you got to see their own trials and their own um, growth, right? And so by the time we got to the Olympics, I said, you know what? It doesn't matter who wins. It really doesn't because all of us have done the work and should be so proud of everything that we've done for women's rugby and like... I was just so proud of every single one of those women to be there that day and to that, and that tournament and to represent themselves and their family and their country. And, of course, I would have wanted a gold medal, of course, but it was more than that. And I was incredibly grateful to be there and standing among, among those players.
1: Wow. If there's ever a It Takes a Village story and the, the attitude of everyone winning, Jillian, is um, – that serves you well now and forever more. That is really, really inspiring. Um, we could go on forever. So let's do a quick <laughs> fast forward, like literally forever. You yeah, see, sure. So being a mom, talk to me about the motherhood and then just going into, you know, work work mode.
2: Yeah, so, you know, we my cancer came back, Um three months after the Olympics. And we had a really long year of cancer treatment. We had trials and a whole year of chemotherapy and immunotherapy and surgeries and all those things. And when treatment finally stopped, my wife and I were talking about having a family and we decided together that we wouldn't let fear dictate our lives. But it was one of those conversations where I was like, okay, based on what we know now, the likelihood of you being a single mom in the near future is high, you know, because, you know, having your cancer come back within two years and come back at, um, in the manner that it had, I was pretty scared that I wasn't going to be living a long time. But as I said before, we, we didn't, Really, we were sick of cancer kind of dictating our lives, you know, when we knew we wanted to start a family. So we decided to um, start the process and we got pregnant very easily. And we had Augie in um, October of 2018 and I became a stay-at-home mom and I didn't um, actually go come to EY until um, I guess and. 20. So, uh, two years later.
1: Wow. And how, um, has mother motherhood been for you? What you expected?
2: No, I mean, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. Um, I think it was, it's more, it is more wonderful than you can ever imagine. You know, I think, um, my, Carol has a really wonderful analogy and and she describes it as seeing black and white television your whole life and then suddenly seeing color. And it's true. I think, you know, Augie is incredibly special and being his mother gives me so much pride and joy. And it's a, it's like the whole meaning. You're like, this is what life is about, right? Is, you know, having this, this family and this joy and bringing this child up to be a good human you know it's an incredible responsibility and also incredibly hard. I'm yeah. sure any parent would say that right?
1: Yeah yeah well it's yeah it is but it's your uni- your unique experience and uh, and a privilege for sure and Augie is very 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 blessed. Um, let's just spend a moment because one of the things I wanted to listeners to benefit from was, you know, you, you're in this corporate setting, it's a whole new field, you know, you're used to some, some, um, different environments. And so I'm just curious your uh, initial thoughts. And maybe if there's one thing that's surprising about the corporate world and one thing you think, uh you see could be an area of improvement?
2: I think one of the things about coming into the corporate world that I'm really grateful for my background in, in rugby and athletics is I would analogize it as being a bench player, at least for the first year. And so what I mean by being a bench player is in your athletic career, you might be someone that plays every minute of every game, or you might be someone that plays some of the minutes and then someone else comes in for you. But that person that comes in for you is the person that was sitting on the bench. And I know in my quick synopsis of my athletic career, you might assume that I was a starter and that I played every minute of every game. But I didn't. I spent a number of years on the bench. And early in my rugby sevens career, I spent a lot of time there. And I remember my coach saying, Jillian, this is a really good opportunity for you to observe and to strategically think and watch the game and say, hey, where can I add value? How can I help my teammates? And as I transitioned to EY, I didn't know what I was doing, right? I was brand new in the corporate world. I wasn't quite sure what technical expertise I had. And I remember joining a project team and being like, okay, well, here I am. <laughs> and um, I, so I took a seat, you know, I took a back seat. I took a kind of that mentality of being an impact player and raising my hand and asking questions and figuring out where I could add value. And over time, I might get a, a shot at playing. I might step on the field one or two minutes, maybe. And um, as, Time progressed and I had more familiarity with the corporate world. I played a little bit more and I was able to, you know, to now, right, um, lead meetings on my own or um, really have more autonomy and independence. I had that in that moment, like in the very beginning, be okay with being uncomfortable and not knowing what that was doing and taking a bench and uh, a seat on the bench and saying, okay, like, where can I add value? What do I need to learn? How can I help? And asking good questions. And so for me, there are times in the business world where it's okay to be on the bench, right? You might think you want to be, or you should be, you know, on the, on the field, playing every minute of every game, or, you know, getting the accolades and the the press and everything else, but um, oftentimes it's even better and and more impactful to figure out where you can sit back and pause and where you can add value. And I think for me, that's a huge skill that's really transferred over into the business world and one that I'm still navigating and using.
1: They are so fortunate to have you and what wisdom for folks who are new or folks who have been 30 years in their careers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um how about a quick say it skillfully um scenario for our
3: listeners?
2: Yes, let's do it.
1: Tough uh, a tough conversation you recall I could imagine early on.
2: You know, when I first joined EY, I was an intern and my first week on the job something happened where I felt compelled to have uh, to provide upward feedback mm-hmm. now as an intern you know that you don't have a lot of ground to stand on right and the person I was thinking about giving feedback to was probably at the firm for over 10 years and five or six levels above me and really I felt like who are you to say anything to them you know what do you know I mean you are an intern Right, and you can almost like shame yourself, right? But I, you know, took it back, paused a bit, and said, "Okay, this will be my first time delivering corporate feedback, and I know that it's much different than on the rugby field because when you play rugby, you can give just-in-time feedback um, pretty pretty easily, right? Because of the pace of the game and the pressure that you're under, and everyone has thick skin." But in the corporate world, you have to be very intentional about your words and how you say it, how you approach the situation. And all of that was very new to me. But luckily, my wife um, spent a number of years in the corporate world at a very high level. And I remember going to her and saying, hey, I'm not sure what to do. And she said, well, I would write them an email and say, do you have time on on my calendar? And I'd really like to talk to you about something that happened. Or I can't remember the exact language, right? Uh, But I opened up that conversation being vulnerable. And I said, listen, this is my first time giving feedback. Um, But, you know, this is what happened. This is how I felt. And this is um, the impact that this had on me. And the conversation went really well. You know, and I think more often than not, being able to provide feedback within a timely manner, because it had just happened maybe within 24 hours or 48 hours, um, is incredibly important, right? Versus holding on to it, letting resentment grow or not being true to yourself and not saying like, hey, that really affected me, you know? And of course, it's important to pause and consider what other factors that might be coming to play, right? Um and what I'm learning now at EY is how might I have even approached that situation live. You know, is it asking better questions, asking clarifying questions, um, you know, trying to present another solution before, you know, kind of having that, you know, one-on-one, but it's something that for me I would say is important. I've, I've had the opportunity to give feedback multiple times to people um, that tend to be higher ranking than I am um, just about, you know, that, that impact. And sometimes I think we might be well-intended when we say something, but that impact might resonate completely different. And there's a gap there, right? And we got to be able to talk about it.
3: Bravo folks. This
1: is the skillful one. It's amazing.
2: <laughs> I, <just spread> <laughs> I want to spread you all over the place.
1: I uh, Absolutely. absolutely love it. Um, okay. You've been so amazing. Just um, want to wrap up questions. One, um, Jillian, what do you wish most for Augie?
2: I wish that Augie grows up to be a kind and thoughtful human and that he feels like he is loved and that he can go after his dreams with, um, everything that he wants. You know, I, I, I hope that he's, you know, of course he's going to have missteps and failures and setbacks and things, but as long as he feels loved and that he's kind, really, I think that's all that I want is for him to be fulfilled and happy and, you know, have those characteristics.
1: I love it. I love it. And lastly, you've shared so much. uh, I am even more in awe and for listeners' sake, you know, what was it like for you to share your journey today?
2: You know, it was a, it was a huge honor, Molly. I think um, when we talk about say it skillfully, it's something that is a journey for me, you know, and it's a privilege to be on the show to, to talk about that and to um, bring that to light is that we're all humans. We're all making mistakes and we're all doing the best that we can. And to, to pause and think about your words and how you might handle conflict in a healthy way and um, have that candid conversation, right? Because that's important. We've got to talk to each other. We've got to connect to each other. Um, we've got to build those bridges and it can't just be done in silence.
1: Uh, you are such a gift. I am so honored myself uh, to hear your voice, Julian. I appreciate you. Uh, I really am so inspired by how you're being you and how you're shining so brightly and your family, your friends, your colleagues are so blessed for your courage and your heart Um, and you're inspiring us all to be our best selves. So thank you, my friend, for being a big part of the solution. Any way I might be helpful to you, I'm here and I am cheering for you.
2: Thanks so much, Molly. I appreciate you.
1: You take good care. Bye-bye. Oh,
2: folks. Wow.
1: Okay, let me wrap my thought for the week. And it's from the Swiss artist, Sophie Toiber arp Only when we go into ourselves and attempt to be entirely true to ourselves will we succeed in making things of value. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Jillian's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
3: Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit 40org and see whether your community is engaged contact your mayor and ask do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time do you know every homeless person by name what are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem
0: thanks for listening to say it skillfully with host molly chang